This is A Sound Purchase, a podcast that does a deep dive to explore iconic recordings. Episode 3, Amy Winehouse's 2006 release, Back to Black. Anyway, you just bring up Tim Curry and it's fine. <laughs> Tim Curry or how political we aren't. We, we're we not a political podcast. No. no, no. People people may be confused, but we're not political at all. We're not. No. Uh, which is why next week we're going to be doing Rage Against the Machine, followed by System of a Down, followed by the Dixie Chicks, or as they're called now, the Chicks. Speaking of Rage, actually, I got I got the first album this week on uh, on vinyl. Oh, all right. You're getting back into into your I vinyls. I never got then. out of them. You never got out of it. No, no. It's uh, it's getting it's getting quite a big collection. <laughs> Their sales apparently are up something like two hundred percent. That's not bad. Because of all of the riots and so on, people are listening to their music so much. Really? Is it? All the conservatives who still haven't clocked that they're a massively political band. Who? Uh... Yeah, I mean that's something that's come out that. Made me laugh quite a lot when people are like, what do you mean it's political? And it's like, um, have you seen a video? <laughs> what do you think they're raging <laughs> yeah, against? Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. The the whole, uh, the end of killing in the name of is like, really? And it went Christmas number one. Yeah, exactly. So wholesome. Yeah. Christmas number one. And they were so grateful that they put on a free concert. I think Pubble went to that concert as well. Of course, he, of course he did. Yeah. He went to all oh, the I concerts, I mean, it was in he? Finsbury Park. It was right around the corner from his house. Name a major concert in the last 30 years. He's probably been there. <laughs> or name a major major artist. He went to see Prince twice when Prince did his residency in London. Yeah. Oh, we should do a Prince album. We could do Best of Prince. Oh, we're not doing Best of. That's that's not going to happen. Dark. We're not, we're not doing Best of. <laughs> My dad and I have this big thing. No best ofs. Not at all. The only time I might get a best of is when it's got like an unreleased song on it. So I'm trying to think like Paul Simon. One of my favorite Paul Simon songs is just a single that comes up on the best of. Yeah. Chili Peppers had that on one of one of their best of albums. Oh, uh, Fortune um, Faded. Yeah. One of the best songs um, I've ever done. Absolutely love that song. Fair enough. Good chat. I'd rather just own all of the studio recordings. Yeah, but now you can listen to all of their best stuff without having to change records. Yeah, true. True. Yeah. Well, there there are some bands that just put out good singles and their albums are pretty pants, so... Oh, yeah. I mean, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but there definitely must be bands like that. It's Club 7, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't their album just composed of singles anyway? <laughs> well, one of them was, but then you got to think they released like three or four albums. Did they? Yeah. God, I didn't realise they did that many. Yeah, well, because they went from S Club 7 to, I think, S Club 6. And then just S Club. And then just S Club. And now I think they're S Club 3. Same with 5. 5 were my, well, they were my guys. <laughs> and then they went down to 4. And now I think it's only 3 or 2 of them left. They played um, Oceana. Not not long, of course that long ago. Oceana, though. That's um Come and meet two guys from the band Five. <laughs> <It's> like... 
and no. not even like the main two. Yeah, I think I think I'm going to preserve my memory of them from back in the nineties. Thank you. I'll keep keep it back there. Although S Club had a TV show, mate. So wasn't it a TV show was sort of concurrent with the albums coming out? I don't know. We we got it in New Zealand like months after the album came out. They had a film. I remember that. An S Club film. Yeah, there was an wow. S Club film. Um, you think of the Spice World? No, nah, I think the Spice World's fucking brilliant. I'll not have a word said again. Richard E. Grant is amazing in that film. Uh, he's amazing in everything. I tell you what, I have been watching is um, Agents of Shield. I've heard mixed things. I, I still haven't watched it. It is brilliant. I really enjoy it. Although we're not here to talk about the brilliance of Agents of Shield or the undeniable brilliance of S Club Seven. We're here to talk about Amy Winehouse's Back to Black. Shall we go through some context, Jake? Let's go through some context. Uh, set the scene. It's 2006. I just entered high school for the first time in 2006. I was a year into my very first band. I was playing, at the time, what I considered to be hardcore punk rock about Songs with um, songs about killer bunnies and stuff. I might even have the CD behind me. It was um, a band called Cyanide. The song was called Fluffy the Merciless, Destroyer of Souls. And it's everything that you ever dreamed it would be. (laughs) (laughs) So I was very much in that uh, kind of pop punk phase where... I was way too cool for school. Mm. And the first instance I ever remember about Amy Winehouse was the song Rehab came out. Yeah. Yeah, same. And by the time it reached New Zealand, it was newsworthy because, well, frankly, Amy Winehouse needed to go to rehab. And that was that was part <laughs> of the joke. And I, at the time, was was not into that. Not into her. I, it was that very first judge her off her off that first news broadcast. I was pretty anti drugs at that point. I mean, I remember the day I found out I was reading a Crowded House biography, and I found out that Neil Finn liked to smoke a bit of marijuana. Naughty man! And I shut the book and returned it to the library. <laughs> <laughs> he was supposed to be my hero. so i was pretty anti-drugs uh i didn't i didn't really appreciate drugs in in music or appreciate drug use in music shall we say although ironically uh my favorite bands were pink floyd and the doors and the beatles (laughs) you know and specifically their kind of their periods where drugs were being used I was way into that, but I didn't actually like the physical drug taking. So I couldn't stand Amy Winehouse for the longest time. And it really wasn't until November last year. I I'd felt at the time that she'd ceased to be a human. You know, when, when rehab came out, it was such a tongue in cheek joke. The humor of it kind of flew way over my head. And I felt that she was more of a character of herself Kind of like if you think about uh, Stan Lee or Arnold Schwarzenegger, mm. they're really not people as much as they are characters of themselves. Yeah. 
And I kind of felt like she was leaning into that. We've mentioned the negative media presence. It was, Mm. I believe the hype. I I was sold on all of the hype that she was just famous for being a train wreck. And everybody had talked about her voice and how incredible her voice was. But after hearing Rehab, I judged it on that and just went, that's not good. I don't like it. Mm. I was so incredibly wrong. Jake, I'm going to admit it now. <laughs> took me a long time to open up my ears and actually listen, and I've been absolutely infatuated with the album Back to Black for about six months, thereabouts. Last year in November, I posted on stephsquatch.com an open apology about being, I think it was 16 <laughs> years too late to the party. I, like I say, I was just really blown away with the power in the music, and we'll get into that a little bit more. Mm. So the album's called Back to Black and a quote from Amy Winehouse was because it is about when a relationship is over and how you go back to where you were before. Oh, I thought it was a heroin reference. Oh, that that would make sense. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Judging off her quote and looking at all of the use of black in the album, it's very much that black is kind of being kept in the shadows, being hidden away from the world in in a depressive sort of state. The music is provided by Sharon Jones's former now backing band, The Dap Kings. Mm -hmm. And the quote I've got down here, and this might have been uh, Mark Ronson that said this, they provide a cocky swagger in the best possible way. I have to say it's, it's one thing that really separates this album from the previous album, Frank is that swagger of the band. Apparently they recorded all the backing tracks that they did in something like two days. Really? Yeah, yeah. That's impressive. But when you consider as well some of the recording techniques they use, so it's just recording an album's worth of stuff like with a wall of sound thing going on, because a lot of the tracks used wall of sound, that's a pretty time-consuming process, getting it all spot on. There's a there's a classic albums documentary on Back to Black, and one of the Dap Kings says, you know, we're we're lucky that Mark Ronson thought of us, but he's lucky that he thought of us because this is what we do. <laughs> yeah. Basically, saying we're we're really good at what we do, and we're lucky that he thought of us and didn't try and make us do something that we don't do. Instead, we just got to do what we do, and that's probably why it came out so fast. And I remember. Hubba telling me to go and see Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. She's obviously passed a couple of years mm. ago, uh, I think from cancer. But he, he was always telling me, speaking about him going to gigs all the time, he was always telling me to go and see the Dap Kings play live because they were incredible. Oh, my next note here, here you go. The secret weapon was that the Dap Kings were already making the music that sounded like the sound Ronson and Winehouse wanted. So they were already in that kind of headspace. Hmm. I don't know how much you remember about the time, Jake. 2006. Uh, let me see, I'd have been 15, midway through my GCSEs, starting up doing my first sort of bands, I guess, in friends' garages and stuff like that. Lordy won uh, Eurovision that year. <laughs> um, oh, I'd forgotten about them. Can't believe it's been 14 years. 14 years since Lordy wow. won Eurovision. Yeah, I remember that. And not, not just that year, they, they won Eurovision. That's it. I don't know why they've bothered to do it again. No, but. no. Did you have a Facebook account? When did you get your first Facebook uh, account? Oh, God, not till I was older than that. I was, um, I, 
Now, if, uh, I might have had a MySpace. I might not have even had a MySpace at the time. I didn't get one for ages. I, I did. I did have one, but it was the Fat Tony one. <laughs> so I, I had the sort of like the largest unofficial Fat Tony MySpace. Um, <laughs> I'd forgotten about that too. <laughs> like, like, no joke. I had like thousands, thousands, thousands of followers. Um <laughs> 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 I, I think that was one of the first things I ever found out about you, actually. And I've yeah. forgotten it. Uh, well, I was going to say, this album was released during the Bebo and MySpace era. Yeah, it was, The yeah. very beginning of social media as we know it. Mm. And what we didn't realise at the time is there was a change in culture with people beginning to only portray their best selves online. The thought of taking the perfect selfie. Yeah what I think made Winehouse stand out from everybody lyrically, socially was the fact that she's willing to air all of her dirty laundry within her lyrics. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So sort of nothing, nothing was off the table. Yeah. The brutal honesty with her taking responsibility for most of the tragedy. She's not putting herself in a victim role. Often she's usually standing there taking, taking the guilt and yeah, throwing her hands up. So I, I think that's what's really connected with me on this album. I think that's what resonated with a lot of people, to be honest with you. Yeah. So Ronnie Spector of the Ronettes, uh, who were Amy's favourite band, has claimed that Back to Black was the full package. Amy had a sound of her own, a look of her own, and a voice of her own. I'd say that's pretty fair, actually, if we look back at the time, especially. Well, yeah, there wasn't really anyone doing or at least not anyone majorly successful certainly doing what she was doing and it, we were discussing before we started it sort of kick-started or paved the way for a lot of other kind of artists to, to do the same thing i think most prominently would probably be adele duffy duffy yes joss stone it's joss stone i thought joss stone was sort of round about maybe slightly before but i don't think joss stone would ever caught on in quite the same way I mean, she's big enough, yeah, but there's there's a lot of people worldwide um, doing that that kind of retro vibe. Mm. Yeah. And I would like to think that even though Amy didn't create it, she kind of took hold mm. of it, made it her own. There's two producers on the track. They produce separately. I mean, it's, it's not uncommon to hear of two producers. Most of U2's albums have been produced by Brian Eno and Daniel Lamoir. Mm-hmm together but this is two producers producing one was in florida and one's in new york Mm. effectively half the album each effectively yeah and but there's there's not much communication happening between them either which i just find absolutely astonishing because (laughs) listening to the album without looking at the credits i i wouldn't be able to tell you who who produced which song because all the songs have got that kind of sheen on them. Mm. They they sound like they're produced by one person, yet they're produced by two very separate people, both geographically and also kind of in their main genres. One being Mark Ronson, who took Amy again, and they did Valerie together, didn't they? Yes, yeah. Which was good. I think that was that was one of the first times that I actually stood up and took notice of amy winehouse post hearing rehab was hearing valerie but then also uh salam remy who's coming more from a, a hip-hop side of things 
Mm. Didn't he produce Nas? Oh, quite possibly, actually. Um, hang on. In fact, they were friends, weren't they, Amy Winehouse and Nas? Yeah, well, we'll get on to that later. Uh, known for his association with Nas, Amy Winehouse, the Fugees. Whether or not that was before they turned bad or not, I can't it didn't say. Yeah. Fergie. Ooh. Uh, but yes, yes, he knew Nas, yes. He's coming from a completely different spectrum of music than Mark Ronson. Although Mark mm. Ronson is a DJ by trade, so there's a little bit of crossover there. And the less said about Uptown Funk, the better right now. (laughs) (laughs) Mainly because I've heard that song too much that even though it came out five years ago, I'm still going to need another five years before I listen to it. But it was everywhere, wasn't it? It was, you couldn't move for Uptown Funk. And get lucky. And get lucky, yeah. When when those two came out, yeah. So Avi's also said before, there's a lot of bands which are 60s influenced at the moment. But I guess I'm the only girl doing it. I think again, that's another fair comment. A lot of a lot of blokes look back towards the sixties to the bands that I mentioned before: The Doors, you know, Jefferson Airplane, um, Credence Clearwater Revival, and so on. Yeah, certainly not as many people looking back at sort of the soul and the girl groups. Definitely not the girl groups. Yeah, I can't think of many that are. And again, the only person that springs to mind is Welsh singer Duffy. Yeah, yeah. This is just from a from a user on songfacts.com. Reminds me of Carol King crossed with Prince with a sprinkling of Monty Python, which sounds like the most eclectic mix ever, but it actually makes a lot of sense. One of the notes I've got for one of the songs says it feels like a Flight of the Concords sort of thing. <laughs> so we'll, we'll get into that. We're definitely going to talk about them. <laughs> I've heard her being compared to Nirvana. For ushering through a new movement of music, especially for young girls. Mm-hmm. And I'd argue that she's a huge inspiration for females, especially younger female singers, although it's not exclusive to the gender. I think there is a lot of males that are influenced by her voice and her swagger as well. I, for one, whilst not directly influenced by her, had spent time in a punk band Although now looking back, it wasn't long after the release of Back to Black that I started my high school ska band. And a friend, Pubba, that we talk about a lot, his band in New Zealand, Odessa, had similar kind of funky, jazzy influence, probably benefited from the newfound fondness for the genre after the release of Back to Black, even though they were around mm. prior to the release of Back to Black. They probably benefited a little bit off, off that kind of audience. And the last things I've I've got written down here for our context, it's big context this time. Back to Black won five Grammys, including Record of the Year. Yes. Yeah. Uh, at the time, Winehouse was a border concern for the USA due to her substance abuse, so she was not permitted a visa to perform at the Grammy ceremony, where she was also a winner. So she wasn't allowed to collect her Grammys on the stage. She wasn't allowed to perform. She had to stay in London. So Island Records hired out like a nightclub kind of thing in uh, London and they did a satellite performance, the only, the first and only satellite performance at the Grammys. We're not a political podcast, so we're not going to go into the politics behind that. But they showed in this documentary, the classic albums, they showed her performance of Rehab and um, directly after the performance, which was just fueled with anger and defiance and it had that cocky swagger that we're talking about. 
she had this face of just like, oh, yeah? Oh, you're not going to let me in? Well, take that. And immediately after, they announced that she'd won record of the year, and that face just melts away into this really heartbreaking, sad kind of look of disbelief. And it's it's an incredible thing to watch. I had to rewind it and watch it again because she goes from being, again, this, this really kind of confident, cocky, arrogant woman almost back into a, a scared little girl in that in that moment it just washes over her in a in a second because well I guess all her dreams have really come true she's been recognized mm. the album has sold 16 million copies worldwide not a bad effort that's pretty good that's about 16 million more albums than I've ever sold so no that's about 15,999 more than you've ever sold. <laughs> Don't sell yourself short here, Jake. No, that's true. There was yeah. that one. Cheers, yeah. Mum. Thanks, Mum. <laughs> the first single off the album, the first track on the album. Uh, yeah, I, I yeah, skipped rehab. it. Rehab. Mark Ronson. <laughs> Mark Ronson to the max. Yeah. It's the lead single off the album, and it led to Amy Winehouse becoming a a household name, if you will. Mm. It won an Ivan Novella Award, and the song itself won three Grammys. Wow. She name-checks Ray Charles, which I thought was pretty cool, and the video is shot pre-Beehive hairdo. I've always equated that when she released Rehab, she was actually in an all-right kind of state of mind, because I, I always equate the Beehive to, to her getting a bit out of control. Right. She, said, she said in the documentary, the bigger my hair is, the bigger my concerns are. And like the, the more insecure <laughs> I'm feeling, basically. I've already said I hated the song when it came out. Yeah. The first time I heard it, I mean, like I say, I was anti-drugs. I didn't appreciate her perceived defiance or her kind of... I took it as a, as a kind of rock and roll attitude. Well, I don't need to go to rehab because I'm awesome. Mm. I hated the fact that everybody kept saying, oh my God, her voice is amazing. Because I think her voice sounds like absolute trash on this song. But as soon as this song is over, like her voice comes into its own. And I, I wrote about this in the article. It's almost like her voice is just half an octave too low out of her like natural, comfortable singing range. Right. And I, I really can't stand the way that it, it sounds. I don't like the timbre of it, but every other song on this album is like, I understand everybody claiming that her voice is amazing because it really is. Mm. Mark Ronson said they, they put just a really, really slim reverb on the vocals, which give it just that kind of 60s vintage vibe, which is quite cool. Not, not a much, just, just a little touch. The last, the last note I've got here for why I hated the song is probably because I was intimidated by a strong female figure. <laughs> we'll just gloss over that one. Uh, <laughs> and Amy herself has called this a novelty song. Looking back on it now, I like the tongue-in-cheek aspect of it. Kind of, I don't view it so much as that rock and roll defiance, more as just a bit of a Monty Python-esque kind of tongue-in-cheek. It is a bit novelty it's almost so trashy that it's kind of good. Except it's not. Except, it, except it's far <laughs> outshadowed by every other song on this album. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Actually, that's, that's one, of the, one of the notes I did actually have for this one. It's, it's just gimmicky. 
This is just, that's pretty much one of the few words I've got is, uh, I've, I'll, I'll read out my notes. Gimmicky. Yep. Overplayed. Oh, yeah. And just in capitals, Mark Ronson. It is peak sound of Mark Ronson, which is fine. <laughs> I'm not I'm not a big Ronson fan. I've got to say, I think his vision for this album is Oh, yeah, good. and... And the, the the lengths they went to to recreate some of those older recording yeah, techniques as yeah. well. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty easy these, well, probably easy back those days to do it all just through software and stuff, but they went, nope, we're going to do it. We're yeah. going to do it right. It's going to sound great. And mostly it did. And once again, really, to say I'd agree with you, it's one of the weaker tracks vocally on the album. But then once again, I just find the whole thing, this, this song just just boring. I think that's the most egregious thing against it. It's just a boring song. Yeah. <laughs> you know. There's nothing particularly redeeming about it. No, not really. But people people loved it. You know? Whether or not that's because it was fresh and new at the well, kind of fresh and new at the time. But then again, I don't know, was it? Hmm. I suppose that era of soul hadn't been rehashed in a big yeah. way. So, well, really, the less said about the song, the better. Yeah, we'll just, much much like I did through my re-listings of this, we'll just skip it and go into a much, much better song. I can anticipate a lot of people are going to be skipping the podcast <laughs> at this point because we've just slagged off the record of the year, a three-time Grammy-winning song, an Ivan Novella-winning song. And sort of her signature song as well. <laughs> almost her signature song, the song that made her who she is, but actually, it's terrible. Keep listening, though, because we're going to go into a much more positive frame of mind as we talk about her not being in a positive frame of mind on You Know I'm No Good. Also produced by Ronson. How is that for a segue? Very well done. I, I like it. I love it. I'll go first because I've only got one note on this because um, I didn't save okay. any of them. Uh, <laughs> just says, uh, Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with. It just sounds like Wu-Tang. Like, absolutely was the first thing I wrote. So then when I started looking into it and then discovered that in America, hmm, with Ghostface Killer on it, I was like, vindicated, done, that's it. And it's, it's if you've not heard the Ghostface Killer version, it's absolutely brilliant. Love it. I haven't heard it. I'm assuming you did listen to You didn't listen to it. Oh, my God, it's so good. It is so good. <laughs> it's it's a pretty incredible song. Her Her voice. Hmm instantly is is up and it could only be maybe like a four yeah it's not a... but it just it just doesn't sound as put on as it does in in rehab now it sounds like natural it sounds like she is actually talking to us or she's telling us a story i've got notes that the baseline is borrowed the groove of the baseline is borrowed from jump around by house of pain the lyrics describe a Winehouse cheating on her current boyfriend with her ex-boyfriend. The current boyfriend knows about the infidelity but doesn't appear bothered. The line is, uh, when you say we're married because you're not bitter, which paves the way for Winehouse's depression to deeply dive. What's worse, getting caught or your partner not seeming to care about you getting caught? Rhetorical questions. She shifts the blame... From betrayal of her partner to her own self-pity, I cheated myself. Is she crying on the kitchen floor because she's guilty about her betrayal of trust with her boyfriend? Or because he thinks she will change her ways when we're married and she knows that she won't? 
See, this is what was lacking in the first one. Absolutely. I don't, you, know. you know what? I probably wouldn't mind Rehab so much if if it wasn't the first single, if it wasn't the first song on the album. Yeah, if it had been like midway through, I'd just be like, eh. But yes, it's weak source opener. Yeah, this is a much better opening song, and often uh, if I'm putting the record on, I will try my best to skip through <laughs> Rehab and just start with this one. The only other note I've got for You Know I'm No Good is that I love the timbre of the horns. Mm. They're so crisp. They're so good. And that's the Dap Kings once again at their absolute best. The whole groove of the song is just incredible, though. The drums sound really kind of vintage, kind of muffled drum sound. Once again, I'm assuming they would have used the one mic technique for it, so I didn't actually find any... um production notes specifically for this song or in many of the songs really but i know in general they used a lot of those sort of techniques where you'd have the main band in the room so you'd have like your the bass uh, keys guitar yeah. and drums all in there together but just having the one mic on the drums and it's probably muffled down with like uh tea towels and so on as well oh probably possibly yeah yeah to get that kind of vintage not not so crisp popping mm. of the snare but that's the remarkable thing about the Dap Kings is they somehow simultaneously sound vintage and incredibly modern. Mm. That's probably the best way to describe the entire sound of the album is that it's it sounds vintage like it could have been done in the 60s, but it also sounds incredibly modern still, even now, some mm. 16, 17 years later. Like the word you're looking for, Stefan, is timeless. Timeless, there you go. Yeah. Absolutely, you can listen to it. Oh, well, that's, you know inspired by the 60s or it's from yeah. the 60s but i didn't know it was recorded in 2006 that could have been recorded that could have been the 90s that could have been a couple of weeks back yeah it should have been the opening song even if they should switched have been the that song. with rehab and rehab was the second song i think i'd be in a much more accepting mood to take on rehab if it was second so you know i'm no good mm. yeah but anyway, that, that paves way anyway for the third song, which is Me and Mr. Jones, which is the first song to feature the producer Salam Remy. The title is a reference to Me and Mrs. Jones by American soul singer Billy Paul. And, of course, our boy Nas. There's name checks for Nas, Slick Rick, Sammy Davis Jr. And Nas is Mr. Jones. Nas is Mr. Jones. Uh, I heard it on the on the classic albums documentary yesterday. She she was on again, off again, seeing a bloke from the record company. So if she couldn't get tickets to a gig, she'd go and cozy up to him, and he'd usually be able to get tickets. But he ah. he couldn't or didn't get tickets to see Slick Rick, and that was strike one. And then not being able to go and see Naz was strike two, apparently. <laughs> Well, yeah. it's as good a reason as any to break up with anyone, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I quite like it. I quite like the song. I think when it starts, it has the the kind of rung out guitar chord with the backing singers doing their oohs and Amy Winehouse's mm. just crooning over the top of it, but not in that kind of overdoing it Christina Aguilera, melismatic style. It's It's quite tasteful. Then all of a sudden that groove lands, that kind of halftime groove shuffle and 
it hits me like a ton of bricks every time. There's a secret instrument in this track. I'm not sure if you know what it is. Uh, hang on, I'm just having a listen. I can hear some bubbling in the background, so... I guess that could apply to it. Is that what's that? Uh. The secret instrument, Jake, is there is a tea kettle whistling in the background. Ah. Before Amy went to do a take or something, she put the tea kettle on because she apparently, when she was with Salam Remy at his house in Florida recording the song, she'd make tea for everybody all the time and cook everybody dinner and stuff like that. That was good of her. I know. So she puts the tea kettle on and then ran back in and did some vocal takes. <laughs> so there's a bubbling, whistling tea kettle in the background, which nice. again on the classic albums, you can hear it only because they break it down. So back on the groove, though, the groove is so sloppy, which is a complete contradiction to the slick production. I love it. I love it. I absolutely love mm. that kind of just hobbling, shuffling groove. I I love and hate how how short this song is. Yeah, it's what's it like two and a two and a bit minute, two and a half minutes, something yeah. like that. It always just seems to finish too quickly, and I love that because I want to listen to it again instantly. And I hate that because it's like I just wanted a bit more. I just needed something else, and <laughs> we've talked about this kind of thing before, where there's songs that just don't really go anywhere and that happens a lot and that happens a lot with um with groovy bands like if you think of the Wolfpack, mm. they have some incredibly groovy stuff that you know i can't i can't actually passively listen to i have to stand up and shuffle my feet around because it's so groovy and it's so good but then they're sacrificing some of the songwriting depth for the sake of the groove. And I, I get the feeling that that's happened a little bit with this song. It could have just gone one extra left turn, like throw in, throw in a, an extra bridge that just takes it that one step deeper. Mm. Then you you start getting into a thing of the rehab thing of having bits of music just for the sake of having True. bits of music with no personal thing to it. Like if she said what she's got to say, trying to add more to that's just going to, detract yeah from it uh, that's that's a fair fair point and i've put the, her voice in this song unlike rehab unlike you know i'm no good is so full of conviction passion and swagger mm. yet the backing singers seem so bored their backing singers kind of slur their lines out there is that not just her doing the backing singing well yeah it might be but it is such a contrast between her kind of a really aggressive, punky lead vocals and then the the backing vocals just being really kind of slurry and sloppy. Hmm. You know, I hadn't picked up on it. I think Salam Remy plays most of the backing track himself. A lot of the, the ones that they produced, I think he did a lot of the instrumentation. He played a lot of the music on. So that leads us on to the next track, which is Just Friends, also produced by Salam Remy. The dreaded Just Friends speech. Can it really occur? Again, that's a rhetorical question, everyone. I'm sure everybody's got their own experiences with being just friends and so on. Lyrically, she wants him, but he's met someone else. I absolutely adore the sneaky guitar lines at the beginning of this song. 
just just the kind of the noodling. Mm. It sounds modal. I haven't figured out what mode, but it sounds like it's in a mode of the major scale. This is the one that I said it feels like a Flight of the Concord song. <laughs> like Ladies of the World kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, I can hear that. Just with less serious lyrics. When the groove drops, the band is so tight that it allows Winehouse to bob and weave around the beat with her lyrics. Mm. The texture of this track combines to create a dreamlike trance kind of sound. I find, I think it's quite incredible. It could be seen as a musical metaphor for the Just Friends paradox being a bit of a dream situation. I I, I wouldn't know. That's... Have you got anything to add about this track? Not really. Once again, this is it's, it's one I sort of don't pay a whole lot of attention to, to be honest. Just like just sort of bob along for a bit, and then and then a much better song comes on. Oh, <laughs> oh that's stinging. Okay. Well then, let's move on to the black. <laughs> it's the white limo the thing again. Song. You know, it is it's... the white limo thing that's going to haunt me for the remainder of these podcasts. <laughs> Back to Black, produced by Ronson. This may have been the second single released. Um, it was definitely a single. Yeah. There's a really great plonking piano turnaround at the beginning, mm. which was composed by Ronson in an evening. And then he, he eventually put the tambourine and kick drum as well. Did, did he co-write this one, did he? I think so. So he, well, he came up with a piano turnaround. On the the day he met Amy, right, she left the studio and he worked that night on the song. Wow! Basically, they spent the day listening to records because he's kind of as a producer, he's going, "What kind of album do you want to make?" And she's going, "Well, I like this and I like that and I like this." So he comes up with this, and then the next day he goes, "Is this the kind of sound you've been thinking about?" And she's just like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> pretty cool." Um. So I like the turnaround, the piano turnaround. It's got a really kind of hooky rhythm to it. I've put the the lyrics are so macabre, especially in the middle eight when she does the I go back to mm. and just keeps repeating the black, but the, the instrumentation has been dropped down as well, just almost leaving her voice alone, which is really dark. She knows the relationship with her on and off again man, isn't over for good. I like to think the back to black is almost like being left in the shadows as an adulterer. The shadow could represent literal being kept out of sight, being crossed off a list, diving back into substance abuse. Although I prefer to think that she was open enough with her substance abuse on all the other songs that she didn't feel the need to hide it in figurative language. So I, I once again, I thought it was about heroin <laughs> I, in my notes i put everyone's second favorite heroin song what's the first one a perfect day or oh. golden brown third third best well i'm waiting for the man whilst we're on lou reed all right so it's the fourth best heroin song yeah iggy pop's got an awesome heroin song yeah that's so fifth best <laughs> and we're not even sure if it's about heroin i'd prefer to think that it's not about substance abuse again because she's so open and honest about these things mm. And there's literally a song coming up about waiting for a cocaine deal to happen. So I, I kind of feel that maybe it's not about necessarily diving back into substance abuse as much as it's being in the shadows, it's being depressed, 
going back to black. And as she said at the beginning in the quote, it was going back to the way things were before she met mm. him. It's an interesting thing because I, I think in many ways we could we could pontificate for hours about why she's died. If you didn't know, spoiler alert, she is dead. Spoiler alert. I'm not laughing at the fact that she's dead, by the way. It's, it's... No, 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 no. She died in July 2011. I was kind of surprised that she hadn't died prior to this. Actually, she did have a history of... Yeah, uh... she, she wasn't in a good way. And there's things like she had to call tours off and her comeback tour after actually entering a rehab facility was called off because she'd relapsed and so on. Like She, she had a really checkered mm. history and had a really tough time dealing with it and it wasn't helped at all by the media. I feel like the the real lead up to her death was actually more about decision making and not not in the obvious way, not in like kind of deciding to do drugs or not do drugs. It's more about she knew that she was wrong to keep going back to the ex-boyfriend. Husband. Yeah, who became the husband, right? Mm-hmm. Until he went to prison, I think they divorced while he was in prison. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. But most of the songs on this album talk about the fact that she's very aware that he is the wrong person for her, but she just can't help the attraction. She can't help the connection that she feels to him. And I think that's really what lets her down Mm. in the end. That and the the alcohol. Well, yeah, but I mean, I think that's probably the reason for the alcohol. Yeah. On a more light-hearted note, Jake, did you know that love is a losing game? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You did? Okay. Yeah. Um, so. What have I got for this one? I've Love is a losing game. This was probably the first song, along maybe alongside Valerie, that really made me sit up and listen to Amy Winehouse. Uh, I was driving around Sydney mm. in a car with a family friend who had a screaming child in the back seat. Uh, and as soon as this song came on, the child went silent, like pin drop silent. The song finished, back to screaming. Song comes back on, pin drop silence. <laughs> yeah, it was it was magic. Wow. And I remember, so we, we listened to this car a lot. Listened to this song a lot, not this car. We listened to this song a lot in the car, and I was forced to, basically, against my will, because it was either that or listening to a kid scream. <laughs> And all of a sudden, the song sounded pretty good to me. <laughs> Lyrically, it is an extended metaphor for love being a game, which kind of sounds really obvious. Being a high school mm. English teacher, I feel this song is a reference to Romeo and Juliet. Of course it is. And now the final frame, love is a losing game. Those are the final lyrics. I just I like to shoehorn a bit of William Shakespeare in there. Ah, that's right. Yes. There's a real subtle wall of sound production on this song. It's gradually building throughout the song with really soft string and horn accompaniment, mm. which apparently Amy didn't want because she thought strings especially always cheapen a song, which I actually agree to in most cases I find. As soon as I hear strings on a record, it's like, oh. Particularly on a track like this, because you can just sort of tell how they're going to be used. Yeah. and Yeah. At that point, the song loses its craftsmanship and becomes a formula. Yeah. 
And speaking of which, actually, my last note here for the song is that it really is the opposite of The Long and Winding Road by The Beatles, who also had a wall of sound production on it, but it was so saturated in strings and counter melodies and so on, and it was actually done by Phil Spector, the man himself. Mm. This one is so gradual and so subtle that even when Amy heard it, she said, no, it's perfect. And she doesn't like strings, Jake. She doesn't like them. Yeah, no one likes strings. And that's the end of side one. It is. So the next side begins with a Remy-produced Tears Dry on Their Own. Did I say that Ronson produced Lovers Are Losing? Uh, You didn't, no, but I don't think you did. No, I think you said that he did the Wall of Sound stuff, so yeah. Maybe. I'm sorry, I was just laughing because my notes for this song is a massive rant against the Marvin Gaye estates. (laughs) (laughs) So without further ado, uh, then I'll let you take over on this one. <laughs> I'm very keen to hear that. So the Marvin Gaye estate claim that uh, they deserve to have a load of money for other people's artistic output because they were related to a man who uh, inspired that output. Did they they took on blurred lines, didn't they? They took on blurred lines. That's not even the greatest song to begin with. It's not, and but the whole thing is, well, it, it's got a similar sort of feel. It's like you can't copyright the feel of a song. You know, suddenly every metal player owes Black Sabbath some money, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, that's like saying then Marvin Gaye must owe someone some money somewhere. The thing is that he, he'd taken the idea for the song that they were suing about from someone else anyway. <laughs> but it's, they still won in court, right? They still won in court. Then they did it again, I think, with Ed Sheeran. So what you're saying is don't double-cross the Marvin Gaye estate. And we say that because it's the chords are just ain't no mountain high enough. Yeah, exactly. And my first note is that it's an interpolation sample of ain't no mountain high enough, which Amy's really lucky that Marvin Gaye didn't write. Effectively, all that means is that uh, they can't use the recording of ain't no mountain, but if they re-record the parts themselves mm. and they're free and legal, provided that they give the proper songwriting credit. Although the songwriting credit has got nothing to do with Marvin Gaye on this song. Um, he sang it, but this is this is in his Motown phase where he wasn't writing. He was more just the poster child singing it. That won't stop the Marvin Gaye estate. You can't stop the Marvin Gaye estate. All music belongs to the Marvin Gaye estate. <laughs> wasn't that way of sampling things very popular with uh, Dr. Dre? Isn't that how he used to do a lot of things? Possibly. Because um, it gave him a bit more control as well yeah. over the... Obviously, the music going on. Possibly, I don't. I don't feel like Dr. Dre did a lot of sampling, but maybe I'm wrong. It it felt it like fair bit. he he was recording most of his music. But actually, no, you're right. Oh no, he was. Yeah, at a later point, he wasn't sampling. He was getting people to re-record the samples, so, like like this. So, so Amy struggled to record her vocals apparently, as she'd originally written it to be mid-tempo, and that's actually the same across all of uh, her songs with. Salam Remy, they wrote them at mm. kind of mid-tempo jazz kind of vibe. Once she had started with Mark Ronson, they knew that that was what they wanted to do. That was the sound that they wanted, so they had to up-tempo everything. Mm. Uh, so she struggled to record the vocals to this track and this track only. Although, given that she struggled, I actually think the vocals on this track are incredible. Mm. You say, well, when you, when you struggle something, you have to put more effort into it. Yeah, I suppose so. I think this is probably one of the best moments of vocals on the entire album. I'd, I'd agree with you on that, yeah. English Teacher Had Again 
the sun in the chorus is being used as a pathetic fallacy. Right. Please explain. Well, so he walks out, sun goes down, right? Mm-hmm. So the happiness and warmth of their relationship is gone. He walks out on her uh, and him being the light leaves her in the dark. Oh. So it kind of works on two levels there. Very nice. I know. Very nice. You go, girl. And she she dropped out of school. She was expelled from schools or permanently excluded is the new term. She was permanently excluded from schools, yet she's dropping some pretty awesome pathetic fallacy in here. Well, you don't you don't need to know what a thing is to be able to use the thing or even be aware that you're using the thing. The tears dry on her own. That's a sign of her strength. She will get over him and get on with her life. Absolutely. Mm. The music has a sound of hope, I've found. The music has the sound of hope, despite the lyrics being based on infidelity and heartbreak. It's like a contradiction. Mm. The next note I've got, and brace yourself for this one. Are you holding on? Yeah. Is that jazz flute? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, when did Anchorman come out? 2004. So this was after Jazz Flute was no longer cool. Okay, got it. When, when was Jazz choice. Flute ever cool? Uh, before Anchorman, obviously. Was it? No. Not Jazz Flute. I mean, <laughs> if we're talking flute, Ian Anderson, Jethro Tull, absolutely. Uh, Peter Gabriel plays the flute in some Genesis songs. Is there anything that man can't Kofi play? Burnbridge from Tedeschi Trucks Band. Played some nice flute. Well, don't get me wrong. There's a time and a place for some jazz flute. I think this is a pretty nice line in the song. And the last note I've got for this one is that there's just such an abrupt ending. It just... Yes, there is, isn't there? She just starts to get into like the proper whale, the proper Christina Aguilera moment, and it just shuts down. Once again, what we call the uh, the Sopranos ending. The Sopranos ending. That's the better way of putting it. Mm. Yeah. It's like the the anti-fade-out. It the is. The cut to black. And I guess that could have gone for a fade-out, but actually it does make it a bit more interesting. I personally was a bit of a fan of the Sopranos ending. I didn't understand the whole backlash to it, the, the need for closure. People like closure, man. I suppose. So the next song... Uh, another Ronson produced song is Wake Up Alone. Mm. I've, I've been trying to think of the song that it reminds me. It reminds me of a song and I can't. I've been trying to think about it for the last week and it just hasn't happened. Well, it's funny that you say that. And I'm going to put my music teacher hat on for a moment. I have so many struggles every year around this time of year with students failing to recognize genre in their compositions. Mm. So looking at GCSE compositions and I have... A really, really good heavy metal guitarist, for instance, all of a sudden decides he wants to do a dubstep piece. Right, okay. True story. And it's one of those things where the kid clearly knows heavy metal, he clearly knows how guitar music is put together, but because he's trying to do something new, and I don't I don't begrudge him trying to do something new, mm. but the whole point of a GCSE composition is to prove that you understand how music is put together and how music is created. Yeah. So I've adopted... In my classes now, we're not reinventing the wheel as our slogan. Because <laughs> the whole point of it is to be cliche. Yeah, yeah. This is a perfect GCSE composition. Oh. Okay? As creatives, we're continually trying to create something new and fresh. 
but part of the genius of this record is the exploitation of the old ways. Mm. Uh, they aren't being too clever and trying to put a spin on it. They're actually just being true to the old ways. They're not trying to update it. They're not trying to modernize it. It's just, this is how they did it in 1963. The music is groovy and you're so used to the progressions that you can practically hear the chords before they play them, leaving your focus to concentrate actually on the lyrics. Allegedly, Mark Ronson has said there are only three tracks on this entire song. Really? I don't I don't know if I agree with that. I mean he said it, but I well, don't know if no, I agree. If if they've recorded everything in one room, you get you'll get plenty of bleed over on the mics for other things. So Oh I suppose so, yeah, actually that makes sense. So yeah, if the band's playing live, there's actually something Phil Spector used to do as part of all the sound technique. He, as an example, the one that comes to mind, I can't remember what song it was, but they muted the actual guitar microphone uh, and just have the had the bleed through coming through all the other stuff to make it sound a little bit more like ethereal almost yeah you know yeah so i I can see that the the lyrics are following the theme of burying yourself in work following heartbreak keeping your mind too busy to process the feelings that silent sense of content that everyone gets just disappears as soon as the sun sets it continues the metaphor of him and i'm assuming this is her ex and ex-husband and so on blake being Mm. the sun he being alone in the dark, depression, nighttime, and so on. These are the images that that's conjuring. Also, vices and substance abuse. More amazing use of English language skills, Jake. Music teacher hat off now. English teacher hat back on. <laughs> A running theme of liquid. I'm going to reel out some quotes here for you. Soaked to the soul, he swims in my eyes. So soaked and swims. Sibilance there. Pour myself over him. Moon spilling in. Blood running cold, I drip for him, drowning in me, we bathe under blue light. Yeah. yeah. I really like the bathe under the blue light. I think that's mm. quite full of an image, but drowning in me, it could be a sexual metaphor. Could be a metaphor to represent how she just melts in his presence, how infatuated she is with him. Could be a metaphor to explain why their relationship was doomed, like she's drowning around him. She's so infatuated with him that she smothers him and he has to walk out the door. I think it's quite clever. Mm. More so than I, I would have picked up on, to be honest. Well, you've got to <laughs> really thank uh, Genius Lyrics for that. They're a, they're a really good source of information on these. Have you got notes for this one? Not really anything that you've not touched on in much more detail than I would have done, okay. to be honest with you. I was going to say, I think this was part, it was actually done as a separate thing as part of a separate session oh was it yeah it was first recorded in a session that she did with paul o'duffy okay but it was the only thing from that session to make it onto the album but well there you go yeah but yeah no that wasn't the actual version that she recorded yeah. with him isn't what's on the album she it was re-recorded okay, well the next song is some unholy war another remy produced song my first note this is one of the weaker songs not as in rehab mm. week i think stacking this song up to rehab it comes out favourably. Yeah, um, but I mean, they're weaker for two different reasons. This one is just a, it's a bit of a filler, I feel. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that one, to be honest with you. It's, um, once again, I've put it as Wu-Tang song number two. So if you were to replace her with, uh, if, they've, if they've got Ghostface on it again, it would have been amazing. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think her lyrics are that hot on this nah. song by comparison. Lyrically, this song is about waiting to score some blow. Or cocaine, depending on where you come from. 
<laughs> that was a very uh, Alan Partridge. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's a subtle change from if my man was fighting to yes, my man is fighting. And again, this is on Genius Lyrics, is signalling that Winehouse is now sharing the demons of her man. That's quite clever, lyrically speaking. Hmm. Someone's read into this a bit too far, I think, and said, is it about a suicide pact? With the lines, B, I would have died too. I'd have liked to. Mm. I don't know, I think that's reading into it a bit much. Whatever his name is, tried to kill himself five times over the course of their uh, relationship, apparently. (laughs) And he would self-harm, and because he was self-harming, she would self-harm in in like a kind of visual attempt to to stop him. I read something about them self-harming due to withdrawal symptoms when they were trying to get themselves clean. There's some brass stabs at the end of this song, which Remy said they sound like sad bugles, kind of like a wah, wah sort of sound <laughs> playing with a like a plunger mute. And I kind of feel like if, if there's a bugle, then that brings in that military sort of yeah. aesthetic. But because they they sound like sad bugles, maybe that's symbolizing that they're losing the fight mm. or that Blake is losing the fight to his addiction, for instance. That's all notes I have on that one. I've got very little notes for these last three, to be well, honest then, with you. Let's move on to He Can Only Hold Her, which is another Ronson track. A reflection of being with someone else while mm-hmm. pining for her previous lover. This is the true tragedy of Amy Winehouse. She recognises that she wants to move on with a new life chapter. She recognises that she's much better off around other people, but continually feels the pull for the darkness and her former lover. I think... That's what I was trying to explain Mm. earlier. That's the true lead to her downfall, is that she recognises that she needs a bit of good in her life, but continually goes back for the darkness and so on, you know. I don't really know and understand what she was going through. I'm not in her headspace, I don't know, but I guess my point is that when you talk about Amy Winehouse, people instantly go for drug addict and alcoholic and so on. Who am I to say which way to go on that? The the song's got very catchy horn lines as well, just to round that song out. Oh, yeah. That is like... Yeah, that is yeah. catchy. So the last song on the album is Addicted. On the UK version. On the UK version. And was that was that a Remy song? Uh, Addicted was a Remy song, yeah. A playful, tongue-in-cheek song. About users, abusers, and hangers-on. My my only notes for this just says 420 Blazer. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's pretty... That's the song in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. A friend's boyfriend is pinching her marijuana. And without naming names, Jake, you and I have witnessed our fair Ooh, share. Oh, yeah, we have. Hangers-on. Um, people are always happy to indulge providing that they don't have to contribute. Yeah. We've we've witnessed that a lot, especially in our flatting days. Yeah, you live with a bunch of students, you uh you will see it. Yeah, especially in Brighton. Yeah. Uh she's got the the line, I'm tighter than airport security teams, which I thought was <laughs> hilarious. It reminds me of um is it Lock Stock and Two Smoking Barrels? My favourite lines ever in a movie is the You're tighter than a duck's butt <laughs> Great line. Guy Ritchie. What a what a guy. 
and that's that's all the notes I have for that song. I think I don't think you need to go into too much on that one. It's it's fairly very yeah. straightforward. Well, it does seem that the rehab out of the picture, the album starts <laughs> off with just like track after track, that by the time these last three songs come on, you're already won over at that point. You're, you're, you're not even really kind mm. of paying attention to the music. You're already in that state of euphoria kind of thing. That, that's the way I like to think of this. And it's not that they're bad tracks, but they just don't stack up anywhere near to the extent that the other ones do. No, no. Well... We've come to the point in the podcast, Jake, where I have some questions for you. Lay it on me, Daddy-o. What's your favourite track? White Limo Doesn't Count. You sure? <laughs> I mean, it's the best song on every album ever, I so know, obviously know. it's going to be... Um, probably me and Mr. Jones, actually, because uh, it's the best song. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it just it, it puts me in a really... It's just been a good good headspace. I can just be in, like... A truck stop in America, 1950s. The Cordettes are playing. Or, uh, <laughs> I don't know, it's just got like, like a weird Twin Peaksy vibe to it. I don't know. It's just, you listen to the Twin Peaks soundtrack and listen to that. It's just like, yeah. And that just, for me, it's just like, that's what I'm about. I'm about David Lynch and 50s American truck stops and the Cordettes. Well, I'm actually going to have to second that, but not for those reasons. Me and Mr. Jones is my favourite track on this album. I can't help but twinkle my toes and shake my booty when this song comes on. Mm-hmm. It, it just takes over my entire body. And again, it's that that cocky swagger. Mm. So the second question is, where does Back to Black rank in your top 10 so far out of the three that we've looked at now? For me, it would be number three. Ah, I'm putting it at number one. Number one? Wowzers. I've got Back to Black, Discipline, Wasting Light. I love Discipline, you know that. I Yeah, that's, I thought that would have been your number one. Discipline is one of those albums, again, kind of like we're saying with the Wolfpack stuff, where some of the tracks at least don't have that depth. They're just all about groove, or in Discipline's case, all about technical exercises. Ronnie Spector said she has a sound of her own. Amy has a sound of her own, a look of her own, and a voice of her own. The sound, her lyrics, just everything about this album is pretty incredible provided that you take rehab off it. <laughs> so, yeah. The final question, Jake, is Back to Black a sound purchase, provided that you take rehab off it? For sure, yes, provided that you take rehab off of it. Yeah, which I'm sure there there must be a version out there somewhere. <laughs> My own burnt CD. <laughs> <laughs> this was a sound purchase. A podcast that does a deep dive to explore iconic recordings. Check the show notes and other musings at stephsquatch.com. You can follow us on social media under the handle Steph Squatch Blog. And if you feel so inclined, you might be able to find Jake on his legendary Fat Tony MySpace account. If you can find it. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>